Welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective group of experienced M&A and post-merger integration professionals located in Europe, the UK, the US and in Asia. We know each other professionally and personally, in fact, worked on many deals together. Today, we're talking about the merger of Essilor and Luxottica uh, back in 2018, and just the chance to look uh, back and reflect on a deal that completed plenty of time ago to see about success, uh, what people expected was going to come from the deal, what actually resulted, and then what we might do differently and what we would advise management. Uh, really interesting in terms of kind of discussions around style versus substance, uh, the the interplay of, of French versus Italian businesses, uh, and some of the dynamics between management as they try and grasp control of a, of a merged entity. So welcome back from the summer, everyone. Hope you had a good break. Abe, how are things yeah. with you? I uh, just yesterday came back from dropping off my youngest child to college. So I am now... For the first time in 20 something years, free uh, as a parent. So that is the big accomplishment of my week. Yes. Although I've heard as if you're ever free of being a parent of worrying what they're up to. Fair enough. To, to... I am freer than I was last week. <laughs> yes. Uh, ben? Yes, good. Although not really been away in August. I'm going away in September for a bit. In fact, I'm going away on on Sunday to Puglia for a week. So August has been busy, busy, busy to try and, try and um, get this deal over the line, which has been good fun. Um, mm. But yes, it's been it's been it's been excellent. Mm. And Paul, COVID. I'm enjoying COVID for the fourth time to see how many different variations there are. So uh, we'll see whether I can string some thoughts together during this call, or whether I'm completely kaput. So <laughs> we'll soon find out. You could write a book about it, maybe. <laughs> that would be a good idea. No other type of my second book would be. So there, it's all found. Let's see. <laughs> Excellent. Essilor Luxottica. Luxottica. I get the pronunciation right. Where did this one come from? Was this me? Was it you, Ben? Was it? I think it might actually be you, David. I think it might have come from you having a look at it. And I think it's a fascinating deal, isn't it? I mean, well, it's an extraordinary company, but um, it's an amazing transaction. Essilor Luxottica was a merger. Um, long enough time ago, so we're talking five years, is it 2018, that we can actually look back a little bit and see what played out compared to what they said at the time. It's quite interesting because it's cross-border, so you've got the French and Italian, you've even got governmental involvement there as well, which makes things a little bit spicier, Um, and and the European aspect of things, Paul. So um, plenty to discuss. Who wants to get started? Interesting personalities at play in there, and the the interesting thing is that uh, the old man finally got his way, just before dying so it's all a bit uh, it's all a bit of a wonderful and strange story uh, starting off with with a two-headed governance which is never a good idea um with some agendas of who wants to put what um who, who's going to put what pawn on the on the chessboard um and, and a very very uh, acrimonious um, fight uh, until last year when finally um the uh the crown prince, as it were, uh, was confirmed in his role. And, and the contender in France who said that the crown prince didn't have the right experience has left, never to be heard of again. I don't know what happened to this uh, this gentleman, but uh, finally the, uh, the designated person got the role and got also, I think, I think 350 million 
um, dollars worth or euros worth of shares from Mr. Delavecchio in his will. So um, if you've got enough money and a strong mind, and presumably this man must have been a very tough cookie, you know, he started life in, a, in an orphanage to end up the second richest man in, in, in Italy. So I suppose you don't want to try and uh, start a fight with a guy like that. Yeah. Got his so, so this is the guy um, who owned the Luxottica part of the business. Uh, Italian, as you said, in kind of like 70s, 80s, when the deal completed, recently passed away um, and ended up winning the fight between the French and the Italians um, after the merger, uh, after kind of like a three-year period of, of seeing who got control, have they? Yeah, so the, the in, one of the interesting, there's very, there are a number of interesting dimensions to this, but one is having just finished watching the final season of that HBO series uh, Succession, uh, some of the characters, certainly Leonardo Del Vecchio, are echoes of some of the characters on that TV show. And, you know, for those of you and those in the audience that have actually followed Succession, it also takes place during the during actually a merger in the final season. But a couple of sort of dimensions to this that are interesting is you have something that perhaps the three of you see a lot, which is a merger where one side is a charismatic, self-made visionary in Leonardo del Vecchio. And then, you know, Hubert Sagnier, I, I may be mispronouncing this name, was he rose in the organization. He was the ultimate organization man. He joined Essilor, rose over the years, grew it, was, but he was the ultimate I don't want to call it technocrat, but a, but a manager's manager. And so this was a clash of two different cultural philosophies that had to come together to make the merger work. So that's interesting. And as often happens, it's the visionary charismatic who won, right? And it's the technocrat who was, as Paul pointed out, uh, shown the door. It, it, it echoes another aspect, which I wanted to bring out, Whereas Luxottica has historically dominated the frame market. Yeah. And Essilor dominated the lens market. And so that's the peanut butter chocolate combination here. But but it is also interesting is that the Italian visionary charismatic, it also dem it shows sort of the, the problems of a merger between form, which I attribute to the frames because versus the substance, which is the lens, right? In a glass in glasses itself. And so there are, um, you know, the entire organizational story here sort of mimics a lot of the sort of uh, uh, contrasts between the two companies, right? Essilor was a lens maker. And then the final one that's obvious is sort of the classic French-Italian rivalry uh, in the way businesses function between those two, uh, those two countries. And so I think that there's a lot of things we could plumb here around sort of culture, around style versus substance, around sort of leadership styles and how it all manifests in the soup that was uh, that is Essilor Luxottica. I think in terms of the uh, French-Italian competition, uh, this one sets the record straight because historically it's always the French who buying the Italian companies. Um, if you think of all the you know fashion brands that have been 
scooped up by by LVMH and and, and other such uh, French groups. So uh, so this time actually, I think the Italians must have celebrated <laughs> in in due fashion because clearly they they had the the upper hand on this one. Uh, Abby, I think you, you, I, I like your style of substance piece, but I suppose in some ways this whole concept of design and capability you know is mirrored very closely i mean apple effectively is a business that was which designed things beautifully um and so you can see that combination working really well in, in, a, in a range of fields not just in 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 uh, in an eyewear in that way i think the thing though that i was i was going to quickly comment on was was the regulatory aspect of both this transaction and every other transaction that's ever happened since then with this with this organization, both with Grand Vision and now with Nuance, although Nuance is a whole different story. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, I was listening to a, a fascinating um, uh, video on where the, the chief counsel was talking to uh, someone interviewing them about, you know, how they managed to get this deal away in the first place, right? And and just there's a few little sort of hints there, which I thought were absolutely great. The first hint was that there's really no data on this marketplace. That was that was a sort of part of the part of the agenda, part of the rationale they put to the regulator in both the US and and uh, uh, and in Europe. That that the the market's so dispersed, it's really hard to get any decent data on it. Um, it's really hard to substantiate this, you know, the, 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 and therefore there's nothing to worry about, you know. And we're talking about you know a vertical integration here, where um, not only do they own ninety percent of the lens and frame marketplace, they also have uh, an extraordinary retail presence um, across. Uh, those territories as well so it's not it's not like it's not obvious that they're dominant in the marketplace but yet one of the one of their um their defense against this allowing this deal to take place was that there wasn't very much data on it i just think that's that's a fantastic one and the second one i wanted to wanted to talk about was that it's really clear you know you suddenly see how a regulator is under so much pressure in this situation both from the point of view of their knowledge of what is a very specialist little area um, uh, I expect I expect massively underfunded from a resourcing perspective and from a quality perspective. Um, you know they are held to incredibly high standards, and you've effectively got you know the best possible legal team being thrown at this situation to try and obfuscate, um, make it as difficult as possible uh, to judge. You know there was a, there's some brilliant stuff in there. They they talked about um, going through a whole process of economic theory, which would demonstrate the fact that. Uh, that they weren't going to be able to uh, do dominate the marketplace. Uh, and indeed, because they control the lens market and a lot of whatever competitors they have in the marketplace use their product, um, that, that that wasn't going to be a reason for them to be able to um, at fundamentally dominate the marketplace. They also talked about, and this is a brilliant piece, they talk about um, that the, they are so large now um, that they can't be held responsible for um, what they described as a crazed middle management doing something in a local marketplace that would effectively discriminate against the local competition. I mean, it's just fabulous. From a, I mean, it is a, it is a bit of succession about it, but it is just extraordinary how you see the workings of uh, of extremely well, uh, you know, smart people uh, to get something through, which fundamentally you'd look at and say, how on earth? Could you possibly agree to this particular deal? Definitely. I mean, I don't know much about the sector, but the little bit I do know is those guys are dominant, are massively dominant, and the it shows almost that 
my sense is that regulators go predisposed into each deal thinking actually this is one that's looking bad whereas they were predisposed to, to, to perceive this as we need a European champion in this space. Uh, you know, the French government were for it, the Italian government were for it. Actually, they were willing to overlook all of the issues and, and believe some of the stuff that was put in front of them. Yeah. I mean, it, it is surprising. And I think, Paul, you brought this up in the beginning, how many of the brands in the eyewear segment are basically owned and controlled. You know, even forget the retail side, which is, you know, Sunglass Hut and that. But they own Oakley, Bulgari, Chanel, Michael Kors, Giorgio Armani, eyewear brands. I think they've even taken clothing brands and licensed the eyewear rights. Tiffany. Um, so it is likely at least Ray-Ban. Two, of us, two of us, Ray-Ban, or two of us are wearing, you know, uh, Essilor Luxottica eyewear. Um, it is interesting. I will mention as a side note, you know, to build on Ben's point, is that... Uh, Earlier last month, uh, Essilor Luxottica was a defendant to a clash, class action lawsuit filed in the United States, arguing that they had uh, conspired to artificially inflate the price of eyewear by as much as a thousand percent. And so if, Ben, your skepticism, uh, your skepticism is not uh, alone. <laughs> Um, it's clearly somebody felt strongly enough about this and enough to file and they filed it in California, but that's neither here nor there. But I think it does speak to at least some substance behind the idea that this conglomeration, even at the time of the announcement, they said that they expect revenue synergies of 300 million, I forget if it's dollars or euro, which is code for some type of either market share expansion or price increases. And I know that there was a lot of controversy in the European antitrust authorities around whether this made sense, but they were able to get it through. But it is, but the uh, the soap operatic aspects of this are not to be uh, dismissed so easily. <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, as I understand it, uh, Luxottica is a family, you know, Delphin, which is the holding company that Leonardo Del Vecchio owned, that used to own 60% of Luxottica, now owns about 40% of the combined company, has now been distributed to his kids and grandkids or whatever, each of whom are billionaires. But it is also a, a contrast between a family-run business and a what I'd call a public institutionalized professional company in Essilor. And I think that one of the things is that personal ambition triumphs administrative optimization nine out of 10 times, it seems. Um, that's the lesson I learned here. If you have a small group of people who are very committed to enhancing their either their personal or family legacies, which I get the sense reading all the articles in The Economist and the FT that uh, Leonardo Del Vecchio was a charismatic, really very uh, bigger than larger than life man. Um, I think it was hard for the managerial elite, as represented by the senior management of, of Essilor, to override that. I also think that, and, and, and this is something I'd ask. My impression is that between these two groups, it's the Essilor group that would probably be more focused on 
the details of integration, of capturing synergies. This is just a uninformed, but you know, you can envision sort of somebody who rose through management caring more about, okay, how does the reporting structure work? How does the how do the wires connect between the companies? How do we capture the cost reductions? I have this perhaps stereotypical impression of the uh, Del Vecchio side focused more on the outward focusing aspects. How does this look to the street? How does this look to the consumers? What does it do to the brand? Um, and I wonder, you know, we can never really know, except through the sort of journalism, what what the conflicts were. But I wonder whether we could sort of theorize about what you know what the conflicts were and how they arose other than a traditional sort of slugfest for, for control, right? Del Vecchio was not a person who would appear to be wanting to be number two in an organization under any circumstance. No, although I suppose the key thing for, for me in terms of the, the struggles is actually on the flip side, it kind of worked. If you look at, if you just take market value as being a proxy for success, when the deal closed, the combined value was $49 billion. And then by 2021, uh, so after that three-year period, it had reached $72 billion. So, you know, massive growth within that three-year integration period. So in terms of success, um, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say one thing, which was just on um, on the merger strategy. I think it's interesting, isn't it? And vertical integrations often do this, right? The, the whole uh, challenge of bringing two businesses together, which fit so neatly together, is almost done away with you know there isn't any great need to change and shift management leadership because effectively you've got two divisions that work hand in glove and if they weren't working hand in glove already right as supplier and buyer of product then you know that relationship already exists certainly on a sort of retail level um between between those two businesses as it currently stands so in fact the disruption that takes place at sort of consumer level is probably quite limited no one actually notices in reality um in fact the only way that they people really notice is that the offering of some competitor may no longer be quite as attractive as it as it might have been in the past. Um, just being a bit cynical there. Um, so um, you know, so ultimately, those those revenue synergies are there to be to to be uh, enabled, and it isn't a massive effort around that process. If you know, if we go back to one of our our favourite examples uh, of Broadcom, you know, effectively what they did was bring two divisions together. They happened to work in harmony with each other rather beautifully um but the need to actually resolve who was going to own this thing and run this thing going forward is an entirely emotional irrational process it's got nothing to do with the nature of the business um i loved reading the articles about the deal just before you know once it was announced there's a great one in the economist which completely paints the picture that you guys were saying earlier where it's france buying another italian company You've got an old man in Italy who's looking to retirement and he doesn't have succession plans. This is all going to go to France as part of the trend. This is an article in The Economist that paints that picture. And then three years later, there's another article saying, wow, you've got this dynamic uh, De Vecchio character in Italy that's really taking control of the business. And uh, and real you realise what's happened is that although it was uh, 
Essilor that were making the overtures and he was saying maybe, 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 and then looked as though he'd finally been convinced and then was just playing this, okay, we just need a bit of time before I hand it over. Actually, they were then saying, actually, the French felt they'd been cheated because he'd managed to get control of the Essilor business without paying a premium for it. Um, So uh, you do wonder how smart this guy was and was he just sitting back and playing shy in order to win control of the last little business and they really didn't realize who they were up against yeah i think that's right i mean it is it is interesting and, and i think uh, david you you point this out notwithstanding all the so, sort of soap opera that i'm enthralled by the reality is is that not only did the stock perform well and the company performed well but they ended up continuing this process of buying things. They bought Grand Vision in 2019, and now they're buying this hearing aid. So clearly, all the uh, trauma, if you can call it that, about the leadership hasn't really affected their appetite for acquisitions, their probably their organizational experience around integration. Maybe it's actually strengthened their confidence that they can integrate stuff because they seem to be continually acquiring and expanding in uh, in different areas, which I think is interesting. Usually a bad experience stops people and uh, leaves scarring. There doesn't appear to be any scarring here that I can that I can see from the outside. I think the nuance deal is a really interesting deal because in some ways, you know, they are playing, they're, so they're, they're, they're the sort of the newest incomers into once again, a market that's basically an oligopoly of five major players around the hearing aid marketplace. And they have introduced themselves into that marketplace. Now, again, the cynic in me would say, well, there's not much further to go in the in the eyewear market because they dominate it already. So let's have a place somewhere else. Right. That, that might that might be an opportunity there. But I suppose again, it's this whole concept of design, um, because clearly um that is a big driver as to um is to is to hearing aids. Um and they are um, you know. Uh, supposedly introducing some really interesting and snazzy new technology, which makes the the visibility of those hearing aids virtually, you know, they're captured in the frames of the glasses. So, um, and 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 the way that they it works apparently is totally remarkable and will uh, be a game changer in that marketplace. Um, but yeah, so so they're in a different place in that market. But as I say, it might just be because they're running out of headroom. Well, they're not running out of money, <laughs> so they can continue as they wish. Yeah. Uh, on your comment, um, Abby, about um, you know, are they are they gaining market share? I think when you've got such a, such a big market share, then uh, the only way you grow is actually jacking up the price. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens to that um, last action. Yeah, I think we can certainly have a follow up podcast on antitrust associated with something like this. Yeah. I don't understand the, you know, the, the the economics of the whole of, of that particular market, but when you see how much you can pay for a pair of specs, but then you go to certain places and you get the second one for for ten pounds or whatever, you think, well, why did I pay so much for the first one? There's something is 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 bizarre there. So there's, there's some more to be investigated. I think. Paul, the Luxottica side of this, uh, sunglasses, the frames, all seem to they're more they're a fashion item. They are not a utility item. And as a result, they're priced the same way a lot of fashion items are, which you can never explain the the pricing based on on the you know on the on the utilitarian value as much as sort of the status aspects of it. But uh, it is also apparent, and they you know this Grand Vision acquisition highlights 
a lot of this business is going away from retail towards e-commerce. And so a lot of people are buying, I think in the United States, there's a company called Warber Park, uh, Parker Warby, something like that, Warby Parker, which has a significant sort of e-commerce. And then there's others like Zenny. And so I, I think that they, but it also makes it harder. E-commerce is harder to, it doesn't have that same retail uh, premium aspect. Usually it's driven around cost and price and efficiency and things like that. So I'm curious to see how this sort of full industry evolves as people become more price sensitive and can buy stuff online that's cheaper. The European aspect of this, Paul, I'd love your, your take on that, is when you get to this size of organization where there are strong links in you know the, uh, the French community and the Italian communities, it, one of the things I spotted was that as the three-year governance battle was coming to an end, it was reported that the France's state-backed investment bank, BPI, had taken a stake in the combined business to try and influence the governance decision. So it's almost like the French, although it's a completely independent company, just because it's you know it was listed on the French stock exchange and had a French heritage, the French government decided to put some money into the game to try and influence governments is that is that normal is that strange it's the latin way of doing things i think <laughs> in that sense i can imagine that you know french and italians um from a government perspective probably get it better on together than they would you know between or with if they were if it was german or or, or british because they're the the sort of way of doing things um which is not always very apparent I think it's a bit the Latin way. Um, look at the way that uh, that LVMH has developed. You, you know, you never exactly know what they're doing, but there's again, you know, a very strong personality, uh, somebody with a lot of passion, uh, Bernard Arnault, and and he always gets his way. And I think that that's just this uh, the, the way these the, these people go uh, in these large large um, almost private companies. They 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 run them as though they own the whole of it. You know, it's not just. Uh, 40% or whatever, it's their company, it's their life. And um, and they have, you know, a lot of influence. They, they've got a very good uh, address book. They know who to call when they need some some help and and things suddenly happen. And so um, I, I, I think it's also a question of, of national pride um, in France, in Italy, you know, make sure that the company remains something that's, uh, that's got the sort of the hallmark of the country um, because it was one of the, big companies on the on, on the French stock exchange they, they they've got to make sure that they uh it's still perceived as as French as possible even if now you know the the old man got his way and I think the the balance has shifted a bit but um it's all a bit it's probably more about appearances than substance okay so actually Ben I've got a question for you here uh and you love to ask this question for us so I'm turning the tables a bit if you were going into management for this combined business in you know 2018 when the deal's been done what would you advise them what would you do wow so hell of a good question to ask um uh, you know as i say i think in some ways it, it's probably a bit of paul's mantra right if it's not broke why would you fix it you know so that th it doesn't feel to me like the benefit of smashing together you know enabling functions or uh you know so hr finance tech um is going to have anywhere near the sort of cost synergy impact than you might think it does when the reality of this is about the complementarity between 
um these two businesses and, and the way they sit together so you you're almost i think you're almost saying to them well you know can we can we get that front client facing customer facing thing going as quickly as possible uh, as subtly as possible starting to really have an impact on the high street and on how we work uh, or don't work with our competitors form a strategy around that that's really going to push forward the revenue opportunity that sits here and almost forget about the the stuff in the back office where um, the disruption is probably going to be considerably greater than the benefit to that process. So it feels to me like that's that's where you go. I suspect also you need to keep that half half an eye on on the regulator and and, and make sure you keep the promises that you've you've told them. Certainly in the first year or two, um, there were some divestments they they had to go through, and I think not, notably in Turkey. Um, uh, to enable uh, to another uh, Tur- Turkish regulator to to push it through. Um, just as a side note, um, it, it does seem that Europe and the states are the dominant regulators, and everyone else seems to fall into line behind them. So actually, um, uh, the, the Turkey thing must have been a, a real pain for them, because in reality, if you if you get approval in those in those two jurisdictions, then you're you're, you're laughing really. So I think that's probably what my my strategy would have been is to say, you know. Um, Let's let's throw away the the playbook which says we need one finance function and one HR function, and it and there's a massive cost gain to be pulled out of that. Let's focus on where the the real benefit's going to be, which is matching up this this supply and demand from a, um, making of lenses and a, and a, and a, and a, um, an eyewear perspective, and get that retail offering really clear. And so, yeah, it sounds like playing a long-term game in terms of the commercial value that you'll get over time. Yeah. Paul, Abe, any thoughts on that? One question that struck me is in these brand-driven mergers, which are really sort of very consumer products-facing, fashion-forward, given that you have a limited amount of resources in the integration process, where do you spend those resources first? So let's imagine just continuing on where, what are the most important things to get done in the first 90, 100 days uh, versus things that you can sort of delay and work through over, over the five-year period uh, following? What's sort of the first 90 day, is it a 100 day plan or 90 day plan that people talk about post-merger? Mm-hmm. What are the, what, what is, what is that? So I'll start with one um, and then Ben, uh, yours. So, so my first one would be just decision-making. The danger with everyone in an organisation like that, which is so big, I mean, you're talking about 140,000 people, is everyone thinks that decision-making slows down and you don't know the direction. And so practically putting in place uh, a system where decisions are being taken and you are moving forward, whether they're right or wrong, actually making progress is the key thing. And then making sure that it's perceived that way in the organisation that there's a common perception that wow, we are able to take decisions and move forward. That'd be my my first step. But would that not have been their biggest problem in the beginning because it was a two-headed monster? And presumably in terms of making decisions, setting priorities, um, the you know, the two two co-bosses must have had very different ideas. So I can imagine it would have, you know, um spread a bit of chaos in the beginning. Doesn't seem to have been the case, but you know, if, if getting that plan right from the, from the, from the onset is is obviously the, the important thing, uh, I think they probably have two people running in parallel. I think that's right, and I think you know, it, it, I was I was going to say that actually setting out the strategy for the integration really clearly really early. Some of those key principles around, you know, we're not going to touch 
the enabling functions our focus is going to be on on the customer facing piece what can we do around the supply chain what can we do to improve uh, the connection between the frame manufacturer the the lens manufacturer the the way that we operate in the retail space what can we do quickly and early to give that sense that um that that we're moving forward as a single entity and as a, and, and that's not focus on the other things that we will do let's focus on that that seems to be the the obvious place to go and you're right paul it's not any it's definitely not easier when you've got two coming together um although sometimes you know what's interesting about that is um i have worked in lots of mergers where the two ceos have coexisted quite happily next to each other uh, and they become the sort of interlocutor right so you you've got an issue and david and i worked on a transaction many years ago where um the ceo of the business that had been bought became the sort of translator of the effort this is not about you know the buyer being difficult or trying to be overbearing this is why they operate in this way and that that translation service if you like in terms of intent and the connection between those two ceos as being so close was incredibly powerful to taking some of the fear out of um uh, out of the, the employee base and therefore maintaining customer service and maintaining um uh, um, the service levels generally. It was. It's a really interesting thing. So when it works, it's it's very very powerful. Mm-hmm. Anything else to pick up on, David? What's your last thought on this? I think the last thought for me is it's lovely to look at a deal that was successful despite all the challenges with with leadership and ownership. Uh, as you say, it's a it's a a merger which has been hugely successful and yes they've managed to get things past the regulator but they've done extremely well so uh it's a nice kind of case study to put up there to say people find a way through the maze and they can make it a good success abby i'd be curious i think given the sort of the leadership of del vecchio and his passing i'm curious to see whether what propels the company forward in the way it has continues in the next generation and or whether it, you know, it it reorganizes into being much more of a professionally led. It it could be that we look here in a few more years and it's, you know, Essilor won the entire time, right? Because it could be that the professional managerial team is what ends up creating the greatest stability in the long run. So that that'd be a good question and a good experiment to look at. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we had a conversation about a month ago, two months ago, about Mittelstand businesses and how right. ownership of family ownership was a was a key component. Um, you know, potentially a, a really great way of engaging with community and everyone else. And maybe there's an element of that about about this thing. Um, I think the I think the thing that perhaps Abby that drives a bit of your conversation is is this this is about form versus content right so there's there's an element of 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 form dominating this process which i know doesn't sit necessarily very comfortably with with a lot of folk out there um but uh, but i'm sure that when you go into a, a into a uh, an optician you probably spend much more time looking at the frame and thinking about That's how right. that looks on your face as opposed to whether the lens is the absolute optimal lens that you could possibly ever use so thanks very much for listening We love hearing from you. If you've got any ideas, comments, or critiques, please just let us know via Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. 